0: They say money can't buy you happiness, but love isn't free. Welcome to The Cost of Love. In this series, we'll be chatting about the sacrifices, attitudes, highs and lows, as well as the emotional and material price we pay for love. Looking through a child's eyes, you think love is all butterflies and rainbows. But as you grow up, you start to realise that love comes with a little bit more of a price tag. Over the next five episodes, we'll unpack that there's a little bit more to love than meets the eye. Whether it's societal expectations, cultural barriers, financial pressure, or just wishful thinking. I'm Carmina. And I'm Kate. And you're listening to The Cost of Love. Brought to you by the New Zealand Broadcasting School. Hello, and welcome back to the Cost of Love podcast. This is our fourth episode. I can't believe it's our fourth episode already. It's gone so quickly. It has. Yeah. How's your (laughs) week been this week, Carmina? Well, oh, well. well. Um, it's been research heavy. So, yeah, just looking into the stats, finding out about the past and hopefully about the future. Nice. So, what have we got coming up in this episode? We've got quite a lot to unpack, so we'll be looking at culture and society and its impacts on marriage, but also relationships as a whole. First up, we've got our interview with Dr. Violetta Gilbert, and she joined us in our second episode, so we're lucky to have her back on board yet again. And apologies for the audio in this first interview. We had a few technical difficulties, but hey, we're still learning. We're still learning how to do a podcast, so bear with us, but enjoy. what kind of significant sacrifices have couples past and present made in order to be wed, let alone together? Yeah, there's always uh, some tough
1: decisions to make when you're looking at um, spending a life together or living together long term. And sure, um, the possibility of discarding your um, culture, your religious adherence, or even just your social world moving overseas frequently comes up on the table. And uh, often, historically and today, it's frequently the wife who goes along with her partner's preference or her husband's preference, if, of course, we're talking about a heterosexual couple. Um, Traditionally, women's role uh, has not only been a subservient one, but a very social one. And so whichever side a woman picks, whether it's hers or his, um, she really has to commit in order to establish both herself and her family among kin or community, wherever it might be. And though she's already fluent in her cultural or religious or social world, um, historically she was more likely to commit to her husband's um, unless he actively preferred to work towards being a part of hers, which um, sometimes was the case. So of course there were those lucky and or skillful women who managed to keep a foot firmly planted in both her world and her husband's after marriage to remain connected to both but of course this took a lot of work frequently on both sides and so in the present day I think this is more of the norm than the exception to uh, have a balanced commitment to one's world and one's partners but I still believe um, that expectations about uh, who should accommodate and who should adjust and support are still by default mostly applied to women over men.
0: How are well-worn gender roles in relationships holding up in today's raft of relationship varieties in this day and age?
1: well oh, i suppose we're thinking here you know he's the one that asks for a date and proposes and um you know she just kind of waits around for a love letter or for a text let's go out so well in that regard i think i guess gender roles are remarkably resilient and um we do yes have uh non-binary and transgender identities gaining acceptance both among children and adults gender bending that came before it with um feminism and with hippie men with their long hair All of that together, I think, has made gender a more playful thing, rather than having it be cancelled or invalidated altogether.
0: How are societal shifts and revolutions impacting relationships of the 21st century?
1: Well, I think um, quite significantly. So the amount of social change that we've seen, even just concentrated in recent decades, the sexual revolution, women's liberation, and queer liberation, decolonisation... And um, more recently, these revolutions applying to um, gender and to non-monogamous relationships. um, I think this has altogether loosened our grip on convention and our certainties about how how relationships should be and um, why they should be that way. And this is for better or worse. So for some, of course, this has been about the wholesale attainment of human dignity, the right to live and love authentically and without fear. So it's been quite the liberation But for others, it's involved a complete collapse of reality, more or less, with ideas and values that uh, were thought to be timeless, decisively falling out of fashion. So I think uh, in between these two poles are a whole bunch more people who are neither here nor there, but who are managing as best they can, um, deferring to tradition, and perhaps um, when it doesn't work, experimenting with something new, looking for advice, looking to what their friends and family are doing. And just trying to make it work so if we can say anything for sure I think um, all of us have far more options than we did in the past but not necessarily more certainty about what we should do with them.
0: I guess I always knew this but it was kind of interesting hearing it again but just how much and this is a common thing that we've been running into here with the podcast but just how much women sacrifice for love and I just can't imagine being in the position where you're father literally gives you away at a wedding and then you pack up your life and everything you know and go and move with your husband like that just must have been so scary for so many women yeah it must have been and it definitely makes you appreciate as to how far we've come in society in this current day and age where you can decide about who you love how you love as long as it's legal of course um but you don't have to follow these strict guidelines as it was back then You can actually be your own person. Yeah, we are very, very lucky. But I guess I would like to know where from here. Definitely. That's one of the questions I've got floating around in my mind. Because you could say we've come quite far, depending Mm -hmm. how you look at it. So what's coming next and what's it going to look like in terms of relationships? I mean, 100 years from now, who knows? Yeah, I think I would still like to see some more acceptance around transgender relationships and some more acceptance around how, cho- how people choose to identify um, because there's still a lot of animosity around that. And at the end of the day, it's nobody's business. People can do what they want, but it's still not fully accepted in society. So I'd like to see some more change around that. Moving right along, I have got a quiz set up for you. All right, I'm probably gonna be really bad at this, but let's give it a go. Let's see how we go. So two questions. Mm-hmm. Let's jump into this one. What country can the wedding ring be traced to? Uh, I'm going to say England because they're an old country. They're not even the oldest country. I don't know why I said that. Old country, right. Let's see how we (laughs) define that. But actually, it's not just one country specifically. So the ancient Egyptians believed in a vein from your left fourth finger, which was connected to your heart, hence the specific ring finger. And the circular design was to reflect the eternal commitment of the union of marriage. But then the Greeks and Romans eventually caught on to this as well. But only gold and silver were used by the wealthy, whereas regular cash-strapped people, probably like ourselves, went for the rustic leather or bone materials. Bone materials? Mm Mm-hmm. Wait, what do you mean by that? As in, they made the ring from bone. Amazing. Yes. (laughs) so romantic. (laughs) Hey, honey, I love you. Here's a bone. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, and final one, statistics-wise, how many overseas residents tied the knot in New Zealand last year? Oh, I have no idea. Let's say a thousand couples. That won't be that many. Okay, actually triple that number. <laughs> oh, we really? Were, yeah, we were just shy of 3,000, so New Zealand, a bit of a holiday, yeah, getaway, destination, holiday getaway, wedding. get married spot kind of thing all in one. Amazing. I mean, we are pretty lucky with where we live, so I understand why people would want to come visit us, but that's way more than I thought it would be Mm. yeah I didn't think we'd be pushing 3000 but But hey you learn something new every day that's right and next up I decided I would chat to Farron and Harry a lovely couple who are also fellow students at Arda Institute and why I wanted to chat to them well they are a mixed race couple so not entirely a minority currently but not everyone knows a mixed race couple, so I thought it would be really insightful if we chatted to them and heard what their experiences have been. Okay, let's start with you each telling us a little bit about yourself. So, name and where you can trace your cultural heritage to, please. Okay,
2: um, so my name's Farin Ram. I was born in New Zealand, Auckland, um, but my mother is from Holland, the Netherlands. And my father is a Fijian Indian from Fiji. And they both came here roughly 30 to 40 years ago.
3: Uh, my name's Harry Wood. Okay. I'm 22, uh, born in Bath, England. I am an immigrant, a British immigrant, i been about seven years now. is probably all over, really, all over Europe, <laughs> if you're English, America, yeah. So.
0: Yep, ethnic cocktails, Yeah, good, we're in good company today, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> alright, so how would you describe the multicultural and multi-ethnic mixed-race couple experience?
2: It's, yeah, the, it's multicultural experience, it's, it's it's trading ground that we're not used to, I don't know how yeah. to sometimes interact with your family. I don't
3: know sometimes how to interact with her father, the father's side of the family, because in some ways her dad's a very traditional um, Fijian Indian, uh, you know, I mean, I mean, very patriarchal, very much so. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um,
2: and your family can be quite shut off. Yeah. And there are a lot of subtle... English stoicism. Yeah. Big thing. And Still you're like, is. no, they're really happy. <laughs> and I was like, how can you tell? Yeah, they're just
3: not showing it. <laughs> no,
2: they, if they weren't happy, they'd tell you. And I'm like, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: Was there any sense of surprise within the family that you'd found love beyond your parents' cultures? Should I say it first?
2: (laughs) Um, Not for my family, am I? Because we're halfies. I think um, I'm gonna be honest. There is a lot of open racism in my family towards the Indian side. Um, A mix of it is because of just cultural reasons, and they're not. They there was a lot of tension when their parents got divorced, and um, they kind of decided instead of being like. This is a set separate circumstance. No, they'd be like, no. This is the culture that's bad. Therefore, all the people are bad. Therefore, all Indians are bad, and they've kind of pushed that onto us. And there is a lot of internalized racism that we find ourselves Mm. processing even now as I'm trying to organize a like half Indian, half Western wedding. How many things they're like, oh, that's so Indian, it's gross. You know, and you're like, like. No, it's nice, it's, it's great, beautiful. it's beautiful, it's As colourful, me. it's, yeah. There's so, many, so much internalised racism that all of my brothers and sisters and cousins have all dated people who are white.
3: I don't think it's too too, too much of a surprise, I think. I mean, England being the melting pot that it is anyway, mm. yeah. Like, I don't think there's much surprise there at all.
0: Do you reckon that more interracial relationships, when genuine of course, could be an antidote to racism? Mm. Mm. I think, I
2: think in some ways, yeah. I think um, my family, It was I said before, my Dutch family can be quite racist against sort of that, like Maori people, against um, Indian people, um, against Muslim people and being um, one, of, one of those people myself, I'm able to point it out to them in a way that's like, you know, you're talking about me at the mm-hmm. same time as talking about this other, you know, yeah. other group. And it's put it puts a highlight on themselves and saying, well, I love my granddaughter. I love, I love Farron. Um, And so when I say like, "Indian people are dirty," I'm saying that my daughter, my granddaughter is dirty. She's not dirty, so yeah. it does it does put a highlight on their own brains a little bit.
3: Yeah. So like I've had people say to me, like, "Oh yeah, oh all these immigrants coming in taking our jobs and all this," and I've said, "I'm an immigrant." And he goes, "Oh yeah, no, but you're fine." I was like, "Oh, you because 'cause I'm white," and they just kind of, mm.
0: it's
3: like, yeah, because yeah. I'm white in English, it's fine. Uh, and then you take a job. That's fine. Yeah. So yeah, I
2: think um, falling in love with someone from a different culture helps you see, see what all the yeah. see the culture from where they see it, which is yeah. something that is part of them. And,
3: you yeah, you, you, get, you get like an outside perspective, of, like looking into it. No well. longer other. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Fascinating to hear that from both Farron and Harry seeing the mixed-race couple, and I think about my parents in the sense that they're a mixed-race couple, I am one of two results of that relationship, so it's quite interesting to hear it from another person's point of view, also in this current day and age, so what were your thoughts? Do you find that you have similar experiences or shared experiences with Farron? Definitely. So before the interview, we'd spoken about it a bit before in the sense that we've got our mum's culture, we've got our dad's culture, but then we're also born here. So we're keeping up with three cultures at once and you can see the world through so many different lenses and as cool as that sounds, sometimes it's a lot to cope up with. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I I feel like you would almost like I mean, you put on a different hat depending on who you're around. Do you find that you do that with your families and your cultures, trying to keep up with things? Sometimes you've just got to watch your trap. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. You just can't say anything quite the same way you'd say to one side of the family. Yeah, yeah. It feels like, I mean, back in the day, mixed-race couples would have been so out of the ordinary and so weird in terms of what was normal, but they're becoming more and more common now, so I'd be interested to see, you know, what it's going to be like. In 100 years' time, are we going to have... Is everyone going to be a mixed race couple, or I don't? I, I, because to me that kind of seems like that's where it's heading. Yeah, it could be heading that way. So I jumped onto Te Ara Encyclopedia of New Zealand, and I read an article there, and it said as the pool of individuals with mixed race ethnicity increases, there's a greater chance of marrying someone with mixed ethnicity. You know, New Zealand is on that pathway towards getting even more super diverse. So in a couple of years' time, and maybe in a few decades maybe it's going to be inevitable that you can't actually decide, oh, I'm going to get with this ethnicity, I'm going to get with that ethnicity, Mm. because you might not have a specific option left. Yeah, yeah. And next up, I chatted to John Selwood of Telling Lives, a fellow journalist as well as a marriage celebrant. How do you define the role of a marriage celebrant?
4: Well, it's pretty legally specific, really. You are there to officiate and to be the person who is able to say, yes, legally, I know who these people are, and yes, legally, they did what the law required. Mm. But built on top of that, of course, are all the things that are external to that legal obligation.
0: What are the significant changes you've seen and experienced in the profession?
4: For me, I've seen a drift. Uh, In my personal view, I believe it's deliberate steering actually towards commercialization of what a wedding is now I choose not to walk a commercial pathway because again I do not believe that meets the need of what marriage is about it may meet the legal requirement it may meet the commercial requirement but I'm interested in two human beings who wish to walk together and whether they have a flash wedding at a flash place is irrelevant
0: are the weddings you've been involved with more diverse than what they were say ten years ago?
4: I think our country is more diverse than it was ten years ago, or at least our attitudes towards what is acceptable. The celebrant movement essentially is a secular movement that says, "I come to you and accept, and will help with whatever your belief system or cultural background uh, cultural background is," and that is a great thing because it opens everything up. It says that if you are tangata whenua but you do not fully embrace certain aspects of something or if you have a spiritual belief system but you can't claim to be only catholic or something you have a pathway that allows you to be who you are and to celebrate and you know to hold that so that is the the wonderful thing about the celebrants movement, that, that we can, in a secular way, still have our beliefs and our culture and carry them through and be recognised as married.
0: Has much changed with
4: vows?
0: Is there a standard script at all?
4: Well, the, the, again, the legal requirement, it requires you to state that I take you to be my partner in life. Now, that can be said different ways. I take you to be my lawful wedded husband my lawful wedded wife there are numerous expressions but the understanding must be that i take you to be my partner i use the word partner because it suggests reciprocity it suggests equality but it is the exchange that yes i agree legally i agree that you and i are twixt mm. together in this journey we're now walking as one Where
0: do you see the future of marriage celebrants role and purpose going?
4: I see a split between the (laughs) movements actually, personally. I represent perhaps potentially what that might become in that I may not continue to be a marriage celebrant. I may choose to say no, I find it too commercial, I find it too restrictive, I find it no longer what it was about when I first started a decade ago and then a decade before that there would be people who were also thinking similar things, that if this becomes about set dogma, if you start saying this is absolutely the correct way to do things, if you prescribe, then you're doing everything that the Celebrate movement started to change. And there is a risk as we move to commercialization and standardization and say, only this way is validated. This is the validated way to do that. As soon as you start using those words, I think you need to stop, pause, and ask, what are you doing? Are you forming a secular religion? Are you forming a secular religious commercial pact? Or are you truly looking at the participants?
0: Um, I learned quite a bit from that chat which I had with John Selwood. We didn't originally plan to put the full interview in there. We were going to kind of splice it up a little bit, but what he had to say was quite interesting, so we just decided to leave it in full. Definitely. I think that one point of learning for me from that was around the commercialisation. So not only around weddings as a whole, but also for the individual sort of professions and services which come within a wedding. Um, Yeah, so I never really thought about marriage celebrants in that sense that there's quite a commercial drive behind them and their practice. Of course, not all, but fascinating nonetheless. Yeah I really enjoyed that chat that you had with John. Um, I thought it was quite interesting learning a bit more about, well I didn't know too much about marriage celebrants. I kind of just thought you know you get married with a priest but I'm not religious so I didn't really know how that was all going to tie in. But I just like how marriage celebrants are quite accepting of all culture Um, and it doesn't matter what you believe in, who you want to marry or who's there, they just want to marry you at the end of the day and Mm. celebrate your love and be there for you and I thought that was quite cool and quite special. Yes and on that note, through my research, I found out that the modern day wedding vows, at least the generic spiel which we hear often, mm. is actually derived from Thomas Cranmer's Book of Common Prayer, according to the BBC. So, for all of the having to hold sickness and in health, nuts and bolts, they were all essentially there by the mid-1500s. Really? Really. That's such a long time. <laughs> I don't know, are you going to, I mean this is a big question, but do we, we, Do you think you'll write your own vows or do you think you'll just use the ones that are there? I feel like I would want to personalise them a Mm. bit more, um just so it's a bit more meaningful. Although, in the same token, there are some very relevant points which they make in yeah. those vows. But um, I'll definitely not be obeying anybody. Yes. <laughs> no, 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 Yeah, I'll probably put my own spin on them. I think I, I would love to be really romantic and write my own things, but I don't think I'm that good of a writer. It might just come out a bit cringe. Uh-huh. So maybe we'll just use the template and put a little bit of spin on <laughs> yeah. it. I'm not sure. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Um, so, yeah, that's it for this week's episode of The Cost of love but we've got another episode coming up next week what have we got coming up on the show Carmina so that's our second and final part to the podcast following on from our theme of society and culture (laughs) that's the one following on from society and culture we'll be tying up some loose ends there Um, getting a grip for where we are today and also taking a look at where we could be headed. All right, well, that was it for this week's episode. hope you enjoyed it. And we will see you again next week on The Cost of Love. Bye for now. Goodbye. See ya.